Well, it is really a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you're visiting, you should know that we're actually taking a two-week break from our usual sermon series. We just last week finished up a nine-week walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And in two weeks, uh, we're going to pick up, uh, going sort of a prequel, uh, back to the book of Judges and then Ruth. And that's going to take us through most of the end of the year. So if you've got a chance in the next couple of weeks, go ahead and get started reading Judges. That's going to serve you well as we try to study it together. This morning in the two-week sort of time between those series, we're going to be studying 1 Peter. In particular, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you've got one of the uh, pew Bibles, uh, or folding chair Bibles, I guess we call them, uh, it's on page 1014. You should be able to find it there. So today's sermon is all about hope. It's all about the kind of hope that's unique to Christianity. It's all about the kind of hope that's never going to let you down. You know, I think... Hope is one of those things that we know really well when we don't have it. I think we know what it is to feel hopeless. But what does it mean to have hope? And what are the uniquely Christian aspects of hope? You know, I think that actually is kind of a tricky question because in our common language, we use hope to mean lots of different things. So to be really clear, the kind of hope we're talking about today is the confident expectation and desire for the promises of God to be true. Biblical hope is the confident expectation and desire for the promises of God to be true. I like to think of it um, like a Lois Lane and Superman kind of hope, not so much like a lottery kind of hope. Let me say what I mean. I think sometimes when we talk about hope, we're expressing some uncertainty. I really hope I win the lottery got the winning ticket right here. Chances are really slim that that's going to happen, right? And that's not the kind of hope that's in the Bible. Instead, I think the kind of hope that's in the Bible is more like the kind of hope that Lois Lane had in Superman. The hope that he would never let her down no matter what enemy faced them. The hope that he would always come to save her from whatever she found herself in. It was a confident expectation that she had in a Savior. I think that's what biblical hope is. It's a confident expectation and desire for the promises of God to be true. And in the context of our passage today, our hope is tied to one specific promise. The promise that death isn't the end of the story. The promise that there's something more than this life. There's something beautiful and eternal. Our hope is victory over death. Our hope is that no matter what comes in this world, whether it's pain or suffering or even the most ugly and final death, the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again secures for us a future inheritance of eternity with God in heaven. Our hope is that death isn't the end of the story. That's what we're going to talk about today. And in particular, the passage we have helps us to see why we should hope. It gives us three reasons about why we should have this confident expectation in God. The first 
is because of what Jesus has done. Our hope is secured in the past. The second is because of what God has done in the future. We have a secure hope in the future. And the third reason is because we're being guarded right now by God in faith. So if you have found the passage for today, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word as I read it. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. So why should we have hope? The first reason is our hope is anchored in the past. Look at verse 3. Peter here describes our hope as a living hope. That's in contrast to a dead hope or a futile hope, a a hope that's going to let you down. But Peter tells us that our hope isn't futile. Our hope is alive. And verse 3 tells us that it's because Jesus is alive. The confident expectation that we can have in God that he's never going to let us down is anchored. It's grounded. It has its foundation built on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, in the New Testament, you can't really separate Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. When you think about one, you always have to think about the other. So I think it's interesting here that Peter is calling our attention specifically to the resurrection. What's that all about? Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Ever since sin entered the world, death had been its consequence. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was taking that penalty on himself. But that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus rose from the dead. And in so doing, he proved that death couldn't hold him. He proved that death couldn't nullify the hope that he had promised He proved that death wasn't the final word. So to illustrate that point, I think it's really instructive to look to the life of Peter, an apostle of Jesus who had been called to leave everything behind. He left behind his home, his job, his family, his friends, everything he knew to follow Jesus. He was banking a lot on the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. I mean, he had seen Jesus do miracles. He'd seen the feeding of the 5,000 with a couple of loaves and a few sardines. He believed that Jesus had the words of eternal life. In fact, he believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, come to rescue God's people from their sins. He'd even seen Jesus in his glory, transfigured on the mountain. And then Jesus died. It wasn't even a glorious death. Not like a Joan of Arc moment, right? He died on a hill outside a sort of small city in the most horrific way possible with a couple of common criminals. He wasn't even sentenced to death by the emperor of Rome, sort of a mid-level governmental administrator. I think if that had been the end of the story, then all of the hope that Jesus had promised to him, to Peter, 
that would have died with him. All the miracles, all the things that he had said, all the things that Peter believed were true, if Jesus had stayed dead, then all that would have been for nothing. If Jesus had stayed dead, then Peter's hope would have died with him. So just imagine what Peter would have felt when he saw or heard that Jesus was alive. I think he would have felt that his hope was resurrected. His hope was alive. He would have run to the tomb to see that it was empty. He would have jumped into the lake to swim to shore when he saw Jesus sitting by the fire. Jesus was alive, and so were all of the hopes that Peter had put in him. And what's more, Peter had the confidence now that the hope that Jesus promised could never be defeated by death. That's what the resurrection proved. For Peter, his confidence was that nothing, not even death, could keep Jesus from rescuing his people. Nothing, not even death, could keep Jesus from reigning in eternity. Friends, that's our hope. That's our promise in Jesus. Now, many of you know that I am a doctor. I work just across the street. And my office is a couple of floors up from the newborn nursery. It's really a a wonderful thing to walk by it occasionally as I'm walking into the clinic. It's a, a wonderful reminder of God as creator. People are having the best day of their life. That's what you live for when you're a doctor, to have good days, right? But, you know, not very far from that place, people are having anything but the best day of their life. The neonatal intensive care unit is just around the corner. The cancer clinic is not all that far away. And a couple of weeks ago, I was actually coming from uh, the intensive care unit where a patient of mine had died. It was somebody that I had known for several years. This was really hard on me. And I was walking by the newborn nursery, and I was reminded of how important it was that Jesus was alive. See, the only thing that was true about that day, the only thing that was constant for me, was the fact that Jesus was alive. See, if he wasn't, then I think when I walked by the newborn nursery, I would have felt overcome by cynicism. I would have thought, there's nothing for these babies. Why did God pick this child and not this child? I would have thought the only thing that is waiting for these children, the best that life has to offer, is what I just saw. Up close and in all of its horrendousness. But you see, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and that's true whether you're having the worst day of your life when your child is taken from you too soon or whether you're having the best day of your life when you have a new, beautiful life that's been brought into this world. You see, the fact that Jesus died and rose again, that anchors us. That is the only thing that's constant. And so when life's circumstances come and overwhelm you, you can feel anchored in the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Friends, our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. In fact, my hope is that death can never take away the promises of God. We're going to uncover some pretty amazing truths today. But I think there's none more important than what I just said. When you believe in Christ, you have a confident expectation 
you have a living hope that death isn't the final word. Because Jesus has already paid the penalty for sin. He transferred his righteousness to you. And when he rose from the dead, he proved victory over death once and for all. So to summarize our first point, why should we hope? We should hope because our hope is alive. It's founded, it's anchored securely in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And his resurrection from the dead proves it. So, you know, as we uh, transition then to the second reason to hope, I'm reminded of something that happened to me in college. I spent uh, some time in Costa Rica. And uh, usually, as uh, happens when you're in college, your judgment isn't always um, operating at the highest level. And so we, uh, some friends and I, took a hike through the rainforest with a guide uh, and came upon a river. It was about neck deep. Uh, It was a little wider than we had hoped it would be and a little faster than we wanted it to be. And our guide had told us that really there was only one way to get back home, and that was to go across because it was getting really late. It was getting dark. Don't want to be in the rainforest after dark. And we had come down a fairly steep uh, sort of hillside. It was muddy to get there. And so we were all getting ready to swim across this river, not really knowing what was in there, uh, when a couple of our friends from the back said, we don't know how to swim. We thought, okay, here we go. Uh, We're in trouble. And so what I consider to be the coolest moment of my entire life we climbed up a tree and cut down a vine. And a couple of people swam with the vine across the river, held onto it at one end. And then my friend and I held onto it at the other end so these people could walk across holding onto the vine. And I'll tell you, these people were really glad that the vine was anchored on both ends because it meant they could cross with confidence. See, I think our hope is the same way. Our hope isn't just anchored in the past. It's also anchored in the future. That can give us confidence to hope in this life. Look back to the, to the uh, verses we've got. See, one of the ways that Peter talks about our hope is as an inheritance. In verse 3, he says that we're born again into an inheritance. Verse 4, he describes that inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, these verses describe our inheritance of hope in Christ's resurrection as something that's eternal, something that's never going to fade, something that's never going to spoil. And those three words that Peter uses are kind of describing the same kind of beautiful eternity. He says that our inheritance is imperishable, which means it's untouched by death. And he says our inheritance is undefiled, which means that our inheritance is unstained by evil. And then he says that our inheritance is unfading. It's unimpaired by time. You see, our inheritance won't lose its luster or its beauty. It's never going to become filthy or stained. It's going to last forever. I think that's kind of a tricky thing to get your head around, actually, because it's so far from our experience. I mean, everything we put our hope in in this world falls short of that type of eternity. So to try and understand it, we're going to make a few comparisons. We're going to make a few contrasts. To see the beauty of an eternal inheritance, I'm going to give a few examples of things that we tend to put our hope in but are anything but eternal. 
So the first example I want to talk about is technology. Think about all the ways that we apply our scientific knowledge for our practical benefit. I mean, there have been some really spectacular advances in the last hundred years. I mean, just in the last 20 years, think about the things that we can do now that we couldn't. Computers, GPS, medical advances, scientific advances, industrial advances. It's constantly changing, constantly improving. You know, Brian Arthur wrote a book called The Nature of Technology. He writes, We hope in technology to make our lives better, to solve our problems, to get us out of predicaments, to provide the future we want for ourselves and our children. And I love this. He says, Silicon and steel are part of our salvation. But doesn't it just take one power outage or one server crash for you to realize that technology isn't eternal? I mean, even in my own personal experience, I know that technology is constantly marred by the decays of time. You know, for me, there's basically no better day than when I get a new iPhone. I mean, it is sweet when it happens. But like two years later, it's basically a worthless gadget that needs to be replaced. It's hardly eternal. And actually, I think all of our accomplishments are like that. You know, people are really concerned about their legacy. What am I going to leave behind? What am I going to contribute? I think the fact of the matter is that our accomplishments are only noteworthy until they're old news. I mean, we've been using a lot of references to the um, Olympics here lately. But I've noticed how common it is for people to be replaced by the newer, better, faster, stronger hero of the Olympics. You know, there was a diver uh, who four years ago won a gold medal uh, from the platform diving, which is just, like, I think the coolest thing ever. And this time around, he had what's called a failed dive. So he did a belly flop. I don't know if you saw that. It was pretty miserable. And he didn't even get to compete in the finals because of it. Right? What are people going to remember? Right? Our accomplishments are only worth anything until they're old news. You know, I think um, another thing that we tend to put our hope in is our bodies. It's not necessarily your physical strength, uh, certainly not for me, uh, but for some of you it could be. But maybe you have a confidence in your body that makes you feel like you're a sort of free, well-oiled machine. Your body does what you want it to. Maybe it's actually your mental acuity, your ability to think clearly, to perceive the world in unique and intellectual ways, especially for those of us who are in research or do graduate work. Right? Our ability to rest on our intellect is something that's so important to us. But friends, our bodies are fading away. It's not just that they get older and work less well, though it is that. But just talk with somebody who's got chronic disease for a minute. Whose body's failing them in ways they never imagined. Or I wonder if you know somebody who's had Alzheimer's disease. Someone who can no longer trust their own memory. No longer trust their ability to perceive the world. Someone who can't even remember their closest loved ones. Oh, do I hate that. See, our bodies and minds are not unfading, undefiled, and imperishable. No, they're diminished by time. They're stained by sin. And the only thing that comes for them is death. 
doesn't that make you long for something more? Something better? You know, the last example I'm going to give that should make us long for eternity is our relationships. I think many of us put our hope in the relationships we have, especially our families, and the idea that our spouse or a future spouse should satisfy our deepest longings, our every desire, that we're not fully complete until we have that kind of a relationship. And the idea that having children is what we really need to be complete. But honestly, every relationship you have is broken by sin. I mean, even people on their honeymoon come back often having had a huge fight. I won't ask for a show of hands. I mean, so much for that person who was supposed to fulfill your every desire, right? So much for that person who was supposed to complete you. You haven't even been married a week. They've tarnished that thing right out of the gate by their own selfishness and their sin, right? I think it's true that these relationships are meant to be a dim reflection of the satisfaction we're going to find in God. But that's exactly what they are, a dim reflection. They're far from eternal They're marred by sin. You see, all of the things that we could hope for in this world are clearly not eternal. And we see their futility. It should make us long for a time when it's not going to be like that. It should make us long for an inheritance of hope that's eternal, that's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. You know, I think actually in these verses they're is an even more remarkable promise. Because you see that our hope isn't just eternal, but it's got your name on it when you believe in Jesus. Verse 3 tells us that God makes us spiritually reborn into hope. And when we become spiritually reborn, we become heirs. We get written into the will. We get a portion of the inheritance. And that inheritance is being kept for you by God in heaven. It's yours. It's being reserved. And God is the one who's holding it for you. You see, God is the one who made everything. God is eternal and powerful, and he never fails. And that means your inheritance will never fail. Right? This kind of reservation isn't like that car rental reservation you make online and you hope you get the car you asked for. For you Seinfeld fans out there, anybody can take a reservation, but holding the reservation, that's an entirely different matter. The point is that in eternity, God is holding the reservation of your eternal inheritance of hope, and he is staking his name on it. So it is never going to fail. So friends, we can confidently hope because we look back. We look back to the work that Jesus has done and our hope is anchored in his resurrection. And we can look forward to the future and see that our eternal inheritance with God in heaven is secure. It has your name on it because of, God, of who God is. And I think this has a major implication for how we experience the living hope now. You see, we can live 
like we have an inheritance. Have you ever known somebody who had a trust fund or who knew they were going to get a big inheritance? It totally changes the way they live. Perhaps the cliche example is of the young socialite who uh, doesn't care what they do. They live recklessly because their parents earned a fortune for them that they know is going to become theirs, and so they don't care what they do. I actually think our eternal inheritance is kind of similar. Not in that we should be reckless, but that it should shape the way that we live. You see, Christ earned an inheritance for us. We didn't have to earn it. He did that for us. And he gives it to us. He writes our name into the will. We're reborn as heirs into that inheritance. Nothing can touch it. And so it frees us from the burden of having to earn our own inheritance. It frees us from the burden of establishing our own hope. It frees us, like Galatians says, to live like we're free, not like we're slaves. It frees us to live like we're children. It frees us to live in a way that honors God. You see, unlike the rich socialite who thinks that what they do doesn't matter, when we are blessed by the gift of an eternal inheritance of glory by God, our response is, is one of humility. It's one of thanksgiving. It's one of gratitude and worship. It's one of joyful obedience. It means that we can have hope when earthly things fail us. It means we can have joy even when circumstances overwhelm us. It means we can love people who hate us. It means we can forgive people who've done the unforgivable. It means we can weep with our friends when they weep. It means we can rejoice with our friends when they rejoice. It means we can live like we're free from the bondage of sin. It means like we can live like we are alive together with Christ. You know, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, puts it this way. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or from Isaiah Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. And here it is. But those who hope And the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Friends, we can live now with the hope of an inheritance that's been secured for us in the past and secured for us in the future. We are heirs of an inheritance that is eternal. And we're free to live like that's true now. So as we transition then to the final point, I want to come back to our Costa Rica story for a moment. 
says, even though the vine was anchored on both sides of the river, our friends who couldn't swim felt pretty terrified as they were walking across holding on to a vine that we ripped down from a tree neck deep in a fast-moving river in the middle of the rainforest. I feel like that's not too dissimilar to the experience of life, actually. (laughs) Life is pretty hard sometimes, and we can feel overwhelmed by that. That's why this last reason to hope is such an amazing gift to us. You see, God is promising that he is going to guard us through faith in this life. He is going to walk with us as we go across that river. Look to verse 5. It says, Through God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So let me quickly say here that the um, way that Peter's using that word salvation is in its fullest sense. He's not talking about the moment of conversion when someone first believes in Jesus. Rather, he's talking about an eternal salvation. That's the way the word that Peter's using to describe the thing we've been talking about this whole time. The promise that death isn't the end of the story. And that through Jesus, we're going to spend eternity in heaven. Saved from sin and selfishness for a perfect and eternal relationship with our Father in heaven. That's what salvation means here. And you can see in verse 5, it talks about how we get it. It says that the salvation becomes ours because we are guarded by God through faith. Now, this word guarded is a military word. You might also use the word shielded. And here I'm thinking about a group of secret service agents around the president. Right? You want to get to him? You've got to come through me first. That's what God is saying. Another, Another image that I find really helpful and instructive here, comes from the Lord of the Rings. It's an image when a group of heroes is crossing through a deep cavern in the mines of Moria, a place where they have orcs, hordes of them behind them, coming to kill them. And in front of them, they have certain death as their quest continues. And around them, they have impenetrable darkness. And so they come to this sort of narrow footbridge that they have to cross, and on each side of it, certain death, a deep abyss, and the wizard among them, Gandalf, casts a spell. He says, you shall not pass, slams his staff into the ground, and out of the crystal emanates a beacon of light, a shield of light that pushes back the darkness and defeats their shadowy foe. I think that's what God does for us. He stands with us on that footbridge where we're surrounded by darkness. And in one hand, he holds a shield of light that overcomes the darkness, that defeats the darkness. And he walks in front of us with his other hand behind saying, I've got you. Come with me. God guards us as we cross through this life. God protects us from the darkness. He protects us from the river that surely will overcome us. He says, do not fear. I am your protector. You want to get to my children? You got to come through me first. And I tell you, one of the amazing things about this verse is that the way that he does that is through faith. 
He says the instrument, Peter says the instrument that God uses to guard us, to guard us for our salvation is faith. Well, think about that for a minute. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Peter is telling us that faith is given to us through the power of God. It's dependent on God's power, not our own. God gives us the faith we need to continue walking, despite our doubt and our failure. Let's turn back to the life of Peter for just a minute. You might remember what happened to him before Jesus died. It's told in Luke chapter 23. Jesus says to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. We know what happened. Peter was standing in the courtyard of the priest where Jesus was being questioned, about to be sentenced to death. And he denies Jesus three times. And the rooster crows. Just imagine what Peter would have been going through at that moment. Demoralized. He would have felt like a failure. He would have had doubt. And he wouldn't have gotten to see Jesus again before he died. Imagine the despair. But in Luke chapter 23, Jesus also says to Peter, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I mean, this is a stupendous failure. I think the point we're meant to see is that pain and doubt and failure, none of those things disqualify you from receiving the gift of of faith. In fact, it's God who receives the glory when our weakness is on display and his strength is made evident. Jesus prays that Peter's faith would hold even in the midst of the coming trials. Despite this failure where Peter denied Jesus, think about what happened next. Peter became the rock on which the church of Christ was built. Think about Pentecost when he gave this amazing sermon about who Jesus was and what his victory over death proved. He got the Holy Spirit. Friends, Peter's faith held not because of anything that he did. I think if the story shows us anything, it shows us that Peter didn't have the faith he needed by himself. But he received it because Jesus prayed for him. You can't earn your faith. You can't generate it. It has to be given as a gift. You know, this has been something that um, has come up a lot in my own life. Some of you may know that I have Crohn's disease. It's a chronic medical condition. It's an inflammatory disease of the intestines. And when I was first diagnosed, I was in college. And I was under the teaching of some people who said, you know, Bill, if you just have enough faith, then you'll be healed. So I woke up every morning and I prayed that I would be healed. I'm not uh, healed. I still have Crohn's disease. And as I was struggling through that time in my life, I came to realize, actually, that it was a much harder thing for God to do to forgive my sins than to heal my body. 
much easier for God to heal my body than to pay the penalty for my sin. And so I thought, if I can't have enough faith to be healed, how can I possibly have enough faith to be saved? I remember it really well. I was sitting in a sort of small classroom with a pastor of mine, and I asked him that question, and he said to me, Bill, you can't. You can't have enough faith to be saved. God has to give it to you. And friends, I think that's the gospel. You are not strong enough to generate enough faith to go through this life. You're not strong enough to generate enough faith to be saved. You are sinful, and so am I. And God gives us the faith to save us, and God gives us the faith to sustain us. Through God's power, we are being guarded for an inheritance of eternity with him in heaven. And he guards us through faith. So we have three reasons before us to confidently hope in the God of the universe. Three reasons to hope in Christianity. Our hope is anchored in the past. We look back to what God has already done. He raised Jesus from the dead. He proved victory over death. He proved that victory doesn't nullify, excuse me, he proved that death doesn't nullify hope. Our hope is secured in the future. We have an eternal inheritance of hope that's being reserved for us by God with our name on it, and it's resting on his strength and his might. And we have God walking before us in this life with a shield of light protecting us from this world, beating back the darkness. And he does it by giving us faith. He gives us faith to persevere. Friends, these are reasons to confidently hope. So as we end, I just want to make a couple of additional observations. The first thing is, it's really important to notice in these verses who the main character is. It's God. He's the one who does all the work. We're the recipients of that work. So you know, um, when you're in a car accident, you care a lot about who does the hitting and who got hit, right? It's the same thing here. We need to care about who does the rebirthing and who is reborn. We need to care about who is being guarded and who is doing the guarding. Now, I'll admit that fourth grade grammar was not my strongest subject. So with apologies to Mrs. Buda, I'm going to say when you look at these verses, you can see that God is the subject of all of them. In other words, God does the doing. Look at verse 3. God gives us new birth. God keeps our inheritance for us, verse 4. Verse 5, God is the one who guards us for our inheritance. You see, to gain access to the confident hope of Christianity, something has to happen to you. It's not something you can get all by yourself. So what is that something? I think verse 3 gives us the answer. Through God's mercy. Through God's mercy, we are born again. 
It's an unearned gift that God gives you. That's how you receive access to these promises of God. Through mercy. And how do you get that? You ask him for it. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he'll delight in that. He delights when we come to him in repentance. He delights to give us faith. He delights to make us spiritually reborn as his children. I think that's why Peter praises, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He worships because he knows that all of this amazing hope is, to, is given to him not because of something he has done, but through the unmerited gift of mercy. Friends, that means that, means that the burden of your salvation isn't yours to bear. That's something that will crush you if you try and do it. I tried for a long time. But you see this passage of Scripture, why it's so dear to me? It shows me that once God has grabbed onto us, he's never going to let us go. It means that we can never lose our salvation because we didn't have anything to do with it in the first place. God will never unadopt you. God is never going to write you out of the inheritance. So I have just one final observation that I want to make as we close our time together. And that's that all of these promises of hope don't mean that suffering isn't going to come. In fact, the very next verse in 1 Peter says, while we're rejoicing in this hope, we're going to be grieved by trials. It doesn't mean that suffering goes away. Rather, it gives us a hope in our suffering. It gives us something to look forward to in our grief. It gives us confidence that God is working, even if we can't see it. You see, in the midst of our something, in the midst of our pain and agony and grief, it means we can look back to the anchoring work that Jesus has done on the cross. It means we can look forward to in a future inheritance. We can long for a time when that's going to be true. We can long for a time when all the sadness is going to be gone. Like Tolkien says, when all the sadness is going to come untrue. We look around, confidently expecting God to guard us through faith as we wait. So I don't want you to think this morning that because we have confidence in the hope of God that it means suffering is going to go away. That's not what God is promising. God promises us a hope, an eternal weight of glory that is so much more than this world. And he promises to guard us through it. So as we close this morning... I'm going to pray from Psalm 42. That's going to be our closing prayer. Psalm 42 is a song of a person conflicted. It's a person who remembers what it was like to rejoice in worship, a person who remembers joy, but who remembers them faintly. It's a song of a person who feels sorrow and pain and defeat. They feel hopelessness. And they ask the question, where are you, O God? How could you let this happen? As Charles Spurgeon puts it, this is the voice of a spiritual believer under depression, 
longing for the renewal of the divine presence, struggling with doubts and fears, but yet holding his ground by faith in the living God. So listen to this psalm and hear the battle cry of hope. Will you pray with me? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Amen.